0: Would you pray with me? Loving God, we ask that as we come to this table again that we would feast on your word, on the words of Paul, that they might reach across the centuries and the generations and speak to us and nourish us, that we might be able to digest them all week long, perhaps all year long, that we might find your blessed presence in our lives. We ask that you would bless the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts and let the people say, Amen. It is very good to be with you on this beautiful morning. I actually came in from Maine this morning where I was doing a wedding last night way up in Acadia for two new members. They actually weren't able to join with us, but they did go through the new members class, Michael Wilson and Jenny Fouth. I have to say it was a successful marriage, and if you don't, or a successful wedding, at least. And uh, if, uh, w- once they come back, if you don't know them, I hope you'll introduce yourself to them and extend them congratulations. And it's good to be with you on such a beautiful morning when we're going to be able to dine outside, given the preparations of many good people who have helped make this happen. And I'm glad you are all here, and I hope you will stay for our extension of the communion meal, which we will have in worship. As Jacob mentioned, we are focusing this month on table fellowship, communion and table fellowship, what it means to come around the table, because Jesus spent a lot of his ministry eating with people, often eating with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. And he also spent a lot of time around food. In fact, I have a pastor friend in Milwaukee who calls himself a gastroevangelist <laughs> because cooking and the gospel go together, cooking and eating in the gospel. And with that in mind, we decided to do a little um, uh, printing experiment. We created a worship menu for you, because each piece of this service has been developed as sort of like a dish that we've tried to bake and season along the way. And you may not like everything on the menu, but it's all been prepared with you in mind, and we hope that you will at least enjoy some of it. I want to talk a little bit today about hunger and ritual. There's a new word that's entered the vocabulary in the last few years that I hear more and more, hangry. You heard this term, hangry. It's a mixture of hunger and anger. It's when your blood sugar gets so low that you become difficult to live with. (laughs) Um, In our household, we have often called this food crank. And I have been the victim of food crank, I will tell you. There are times where I insist on getting a parking space on the street and not paying for a lot in lower Manhattan. And I'm told, if you don't get a space right now, I'm going to rip your face off. (laughs) That is the definition of hangry, when someone is that hungry. What happens to me when I get hangry is I actually kind of get real, real, real quiet and focus in, almost frighteningly quiet, as if there's something bad I'm going to do in a minute. And so it's important to get fed. Now this, in many ways, is a first world problem, a superpower problem, where usually, actually, real genuine hunger pangs only start until about 12 or 24 hours after your last ingestion of food. And so we have this experience of, getting to our wit's end. You know what it's like. I've been traveling before in a strange place, and I start everything starts to seem gloomy and bad, and I realize I'm in a beautiful tourist place. This happened to me one time traveling in Asia, and I thought I should be enjoying this, and I realized, when was your last meal? You didn't have your last meal recently, and so you're not well-oriented. We all need to keep a regular s- supply of sustenance, and those of you who are interested in fitness know that they often expressed that we should have five small meals a day to keep us fed. There's another kind of meal, which is ritual, which you and I do occasionally, where we try to remember a meal. And in this culture, the one we do the most is Thanksgiving. It is a way of trying to remember what it was like down in Plymouth that first time that the native folks and the pilgrim and Puritan religious invaders got together (laughs) and had a dinner. And we try to remember what foods they have. And some of you might have gone down to Plymouth Plantation and had that coarse stuff they have. Or Sturbridge Village, where they have all the pan drippings over all the vegetables. It's quite amazing to go have those feasts. In my family, my sister is quite dogmatic about turkey dinner. It has to have a certain way of roasting the turkey, a certain kind of stuffing, and a certain way of doing the potatoes. And if we vary from it, she gets very upset. No potato skins in the mashed potatoes. Or we have to have that certain stuffing with the veal sausage, but now we're more sensitive about that, so we want to get appropriately raised veal for the sausage. And dried apricots, but they should be unsulfured and organic. And for the gluten-free folks, we need to have an option, as well as for the vegetarians. But we're still coming around this meal, trying to remember an event that happened back in the 1620s, down in a little utopian community in what was then starting to become Massachusetts Bay Colony. Our Jewish sisters and brothers do the Passover meal every year, which is a way of remembering the Exodus through ritual objects and dipping of wine to remember the blood shed by the Israelites and the different plagues that came about. It is a way of remembering events. And in the same way, that is exactly what we do at this table. This table says on it, do this in remembrance of me. And that is so that we might remember the meal that Jesus had with his disciples, but also I like to think of it of how we remember ourselves as the body of Christ. And what was going on in Corinth at the time, and this is quite an angry part of Paul's letter that Jacob just read, is he's obviously very displeased about the way they are remembering this meal. In Corinth at the time, they actually probably had this meal in private homes. And there was a hierarchy to a private meal. One of Paul's contemporaries, Pliny the Younger, was at such a dinner in which the host boasted of the elegance and economy of his meal. But here's how it worked. The host set the best dishes before himself and a few others and treated the rest to cheap and scrappy food. He had apportioned the wine in small decanters of three different kinds, kind of an ancient wine flight, not in order to give his guests their choice, but so that they might not refuse. He had one kind for himself and for us, Pliny was one of the guests, another for his less distinguished friends, for he is a man who classifies his acquaintances, and a third glass for his own freedmen or servants and those of his guests. The man who sat next to me noticed this and asked me if I approved of it. And I said, no. Then how do you arrange matters at your household, he asked. I set the same before all people. For I invite my friends to dine, not to grade them one above the other. And those whom I have set at equal places at my board and on my couches, I treat as equals in every respect. What? Even the servants? Yes, I replied, for then I regard them as my guests at table and not as servants. And he went on, it must cost you a lot. And he said, not at all. Then how do you manage it? Well, it's easily done because my servants do not drink the same wine as I do, but I drink the same that they do. And by Jove, Pliny was a pagan, the fact is that if you keep off gluttony, it is not at all ruinously expensive to entertain a number of people to the fare you have for yourself. What was going on in the church at Corinth is that not everyone was getting equally fed, and it was disturbing the sacrament of this meal, because when we come to this table, we are all equals regardless of what our hunger is, regardless of our station in life, regardless of what the world outside, how the world outside ranks us, we come to this table as equal souls, with an equal place at the table. And I would say whether you believe a little or a lot, or even not at all, this table is set for you and we do it again and again that we might remember this meal. Now, there is a part that we say in the communion service, which we'll say in a minute, which probably creeps you out. It even makes me a little squeamish. It's when we, and we said it in our call to worship. It's the words that Jesus said, This is my body, take, eat. And this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it all. We were going over these words together and planning worship, and one of my colleagues said, That's really gross. And I said, Yes, it is. Didn't quite say it was gross, but the idea. But I have been looking forward to talking about this, and it may creep you out a little bit. I've been looking forward to it all week long, actually. (laughs) But there are some things about that that we don't understand because we've lost the idea that Jesus was trying to impart. Now, theologians have been arguing about these matters for years. Those of you who grew up Catholic or grew up critiquing Catholics know about transubstantiation. The idea that the body and the blood actually become physically manifest in the bread and the wine. That is one way of looking at it, and it certainly meant a great deal to those who followed in the ways of Jesus. There's also the idea of consubstantiation, that it's not actually in the bread and the drink, but it's beside it. It's right here. It's a blessed presence. And then there there are other theories which I have to admit I don't fully understand because it gets so arcane and interesting and interwoven. But there is the idea which our Baptist tradition comes out of, which is this is a memorial meal. This is to help us remember what Jesus did, and by remembering, bring some of the Holy Spirit back into our lives and the presence of Christ. It does strike a little bit of cannibalism when you think about eating the body and drinking the blood. I read a wonderful sermon a few weeks ago about the blood covenant, who said, She started the sermon by talking about how she and her best friend were blood sisters. I don't know if any of you did that, where you pricked your finger and put your blood together. And then she described in great detail, which I will spare you, some blood covenant traditions that have stretched across every culture over the years. It involves drinking one another's blood. I read it aloud uh, in, in the office the other day, and we were all squeamish as we read this. And as this preacher said, you know, in an era of AIDS, it's harder to think about blood in this way. I would add hepatitis and Ebola and anything else. Now, the Red Cross will encourage us to still give of our blood, our lifeblood, to one another. But the idea of ingesting blood is a strange concept. The idea of eating another's flesh is a strange and abhorrent concept. And yet, many of us here eat fish and chicken and turkey and pork and beef, the flesh of other sentient beings. We also drink the secretions of other animals. You may not have thought it that way. It came home to me one time when I was working alongside a nursing mother who was pumping at work, and I went to go put milk in my coffee in the fridge and was caught up short. (laughs) To have done that would have been abhorrent. Whereas nursing a baby is not abhorrent to us at all. In some ways, the kosher laws that our Jewish friends have observed for years, we observe in a slightly more expanded way. But the idea of eating the flesh of frogs or reptiles or even your cat or dog or horse is abhorrent to us. The same, the idea of eating the secretions and even fermenting them and making a cheese and putting on um, bread of any other animal besides a cow, a sheep, or goat is abhorrent to us. I think in the first century, though, they were acquainted with flesh and blood and body and crucifixions in a way that most of us are not. Perhaps our friends around the world in the two-thirds world are more acquainted with it than we are. But I imagine if most of us had to visit a slaughterhouse and see what actually goes on, we would stop eating meat if we had to hear what actually happens. Jesus wanted to impart to his followers that he had a kinship with them. And he knew that one day he would be gone, and they would still be scratching their heads and wondering if he ever even existed, just like many of us scratch our heads sometimes. And he knew that many of us would wonder what it would mean to follow him, some people even to death, even to having their flesh and blood given up. And he wanted us to remember him in that way that we might be so daring and so careful. It was a way of being blood brothers and sisters with him, a way of sharing his flesh with him. Now, I have to tell you, when I do the meal, I think of it as a memorial, as a sacramental representation. But it also helps me remember that there is some suffering And then when I eat of this bread, and when I drink of this fruit of the vine, it is a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward grace. It is much like what we do at baptism. Water that comes out of the Brookline Reservoir is blessed by us and used for a holy purpose. And when we come to this table, this is used for a holy purpose. Because all of us come in here with some hunger. All of us come in here with some hangry with our lives. The day that didn't go well, the family member who wronged us, the job we didn't get, the sickness that has pervaded our family, the contention in the world, people who refuse to get along and throw missiles at each other again and again. So when we come to this meal, I want us to take a bit of Jesus in a sense of sacrament and memorial. I invite you, when you come up, that you will get a big piece of bread for whatever you need, and you will say a prayer for whatever you're hangry for in this world. That again and again, when we come to this meal, it will embolden and empower us to go forth and be followers of Jesus once again. Now, I will say one other word, and we'll, we'll talk about this as we go further in this series in the month of September, but this church, in the merger of three churches, has had three different traditions of communion. The Baptists and the Congregationalists passed the meal to one another, and some of you have spoken to me about how you enjoy that moment of personal piety at your seat with the meal. And the Methodists over here at St. Mark's had a very holy way of doing it, of kneeling here at the front and receiving it from the pastor. We have experimented in my time here with serving one another in the chapel during Advent services and Lenten services, and also serving one another downstairs in a great chaotic mass around the table. I would like us to continue experimenting with this and explore the traditions of this church. But I'd also like us to think about what it would mean to celebrate this meal at home, in our own homes, around the table, a place where everyone is welcome and equals before God, that we might be followers of Jesus. So I hope you'll come and experiment together. Amen.